In this share, we consider various halachas related to the ongoing operations of partnerships. There's a major machlok safranim. If one partner acts in an unauthorized way, he sells property of the partnership without permission, against best practices, against the agreement of the partners, he does something, he takes an action against the interests of the other partners without their permission, and there's a third party involved. He sells property of the partnership to a third party. Is that binding? Can the other partner say, you weren't authorized, we want to reverse this, we want to take the property back? Or can the buyer say, I bought it, I bought it in good faith, you're a member of the partnership, you acted on behalf of the partnership, so I expect whatever transaction you you transacted with me, I expect it to be binding. So this is a major machlokas among the Achronim, the Shach, and Choshen Mishpat, and the Beis Hillel, and Eben Ezer, both say that whatever a partner does is binding upon the other partners. Even though the Shach points out, when it comes to a Shliach, when it comes to an agent, there is a fundamental rule that a Shliach who exceeds his authority, who deviates from his instructions, we say that the principal can say, I sent you to do the correct thing and not to deviate, not to do the wrong thing, not to act against my interest. And therefore, whatever a shliach does, when he exceeds the scope of his authority, we say that it's void. Shutfin are different. When it comes to partners, it's different. The shach explains it's for pragmatic reasons. This is the way that shutfin operate. It would be very difficult for partners to do business if the person that they're on the other side of the transaction if he would have to gain the, the acquiescence of every single partner, if no transaction is binding and irrevocable unless all the partners sign on, it would be cumbersome and very inconvenient to do business, and that would not be in the best interest of the partners. And therefore, there's a default presumption in the case of partnerships that the, the partners agree when they go into partnership that whatever any one partner does on behalf of the partnership shall be presumed to be valid, shall be valid, and they won't be able to overturn it whether they'll be able to sue, whether they'll have a claim against the partner for acting improperly, whether they can demand compensation from him, that's a separate question. That's something we'll, we'll, discuss, we'll discuss in the next share in Mir Tashem. But, but, but with respect to outsiders, the, the Shach and the Basil hold that whatever the one Shutuf does is binding, and the other Shutuf cannot overturn it, even if he was not authorized to do what he did. Other Akhurim disagree. They say, The covenant of partnership was not so expansive. It didn't give one partner the right to act against the, the interest of the other partners without authorization. So they say there's no such thing, and the Shutfin do have the right, the other Shutfin do have the right to overturn whatever, whatever one Shutfin did without authorization. Not so clear how we paskin. The, the Arachshai says that this is a, this is a weak umdana, this umdana that, that they agree, that they authorize him regardless, is a weak umdana, it depends, depends who's muksuk, if there's still muksuk in the property, the shutfin, or if the seller's muksuk, or if the buyer's muksuk, it will depend where the property is, because it's machlok sakronim, and, uh, and the svare is debatable, so he says it will depend who's muksuk. Marsham, the Marsham adds a couple of restrictions, even according to the opinion of the shach, that what a partner does, is binding, even if he exceeds his, his authorization, his explicit authorization, Marsham says that, that that will not apply in certain cases. He says it depends on, it's an umdana, it's an assumption of what the other partners were willing to grant in advance, how much authority they were willing to grant, beyond that which they explicitly grant him. So he says that if there was an explicit condition that he not do something, then we don't assume that they gave him the power to override that. If they didn't explicitly 
state, state one way or another about a certain practice in the partnership agreement, and he does something, even if that's against the Shulchan Aruch, or it's against the Minog, maybe. In such cases, we say that what the Shukhaf did is binding, and they have to take it up with him, whether he'll compensate them or not. But in a case where there's an explicit agreement that, that the partnership was not going to take a certain action, and the partner did, then that is not binding, and the other partners have the right to, other partners have the right to overturn them. Furthermore, he says, this idea that Shutfin grant each other this broad, broad authority, even to exceed what the, what, what they were normally supposed, to, what they were normally supposed to do, that only applies, he says, to a general partnership, to a partnership for a fixed period of time, or for an indefinite period of time. But since the partnership is broad, and, and they're in business together, we say that they grant each other this type of broad, broad general authorization. But two people who just had a joint venture, they bought a specific property, and they're going to sell it and divide the proceeds, they're not actually going into business in a, in a general way for a, for a fixed period of time. They just did one deal together. They bought some property, they're going to unload it and go their separate ways. Uh, such a partnership, he says, it might be called technically a partnership, but in such a partnership, we don't have this, we don't have this rule, even according to the Shaft, we don't have this rule that the partners grant each other this broad authorization to exceed the to, to exceed what they would normally have the right to do under the rules of of partners. There's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch that if a shutif provides, if a partner provides the partnership with the use of his assets, he lets them use his shop, his warehouse, he lets them use his animal, or perhaps his commercial vehicle, that he makes his he makes his assets available to the partnership, even if he doesn't enter into a formal contract with the partnership, he has the right to demand compensation from the partnership. He takes, he takes whatever the rent, the fair rental value of his assets were off the top, and then the, and the partners then divide the rest as profit and loss, but he first gets to be compensated for whatever, whatever of his property he made available to the partnership. Pesachoshin says that, presumably, it's possible he says, this is only the type of property for which one normally charges rent. Examples I gave of a warehouse or a commercial vehicle, but he says something which is not normally the, the custom to charge, he lets the partnership use his pen. Maybe he gives the partnership uh, a ride, the partnership goods a ride in his personal vehicle, takes a mail to the post office or something like that. Pesachoshim doesn't give these examples, but in cases where it's not the direct charge, he says, then he thinks it would be Pashat that he has no right to bill this to the partnership. There's another halacha in the same vein in Shulchan Aruch. It says that a shutta of a partner who provides services, who engages in improvement of property of partnership property. Again, even though he has no contract to do that improvement and to charge for it, but if he does indeed unilaterally, he volunteers and makes certain improvements to partnership property, personal property, real property, either way, he has the status of a yarig, the yarig, someone who goes and improves someone else's property without a contract, without an agreement, and he's considered a yarig brishus. There are different categories of yarig. A shutuf is considered a yarig brishus, who generally has a higher level of compensation, and he can charge the partnership for the for the work that he did, for the services that he provided. This is Akronim, whether this whether he is completely like a yard brishus, a real yard brishus, who is actually authorized, has the right to charge the partner has the right to charge the person whose property he tried to improve, even if he didn't wind up improving it. If he made certain expenditures, unfortunately the improvement didn't happen, or the improvement was worth less than his expenditures, he still has the right to recoup the entirety of his expenditures. That's the halacha in a classic Yorid Brishus, and some Akronim understand that that's the halacha, that Shmuel argues, this is the opinion of the Rambam, that, th- that this is the halacha with regard to partners as well, that if a partner spends money improving partnership property, even though he has no contract, 
He has the right to charge the partnership for the, the value of his efforts, the value of his services, just like in the previous case we said he can charge for the, for the, for the use of his property, his warehouse, his vehicles, and so on. Here, too, we can charge the full value of the services he provided, even if, as long as he did it in good faith, even if the, the improvement that he hoped to happen didn't happen, or there was no improvement, or the improvement was worth less than the value of his contribution of services, he, he's considered completely yard brishus, and he can charge the complete value of his contribution. The Ramah disagrees. The Ramah, based on the Mukayosef and other Rishonim, the Ramah says that he's capped, he's limited by actual improvement that occurred, he can't get more than that. The Bishmuel challenges that. So that's Machlov Sakharov. He's definitely a Yorite. He definitely gets, he definitely gets uh, some compensation for his services, whether it's the full value of his services, regardless of whether there's any improvement, or whether he's limited by the improvement. The maximum is the amount of improvement. That's Machlov Sakharov. But it's clear that just like he can charge for the use of his, his store, the use of his animal, the use of his warehouse, and so on, it's clear that he can charge for the use, for services that he provided as well. There is a problematic ruling of the Nesivas. The Nesivas HaMeshpat rules that in general, if one Shutuf decides to, Nesivas elsewhere, not commenting on the Salacha, but the Nesivas elsewhere writes that if one partner decides to be Tareach, to, to engage in effort and work on behalf of the partnership, he has no right to charge the partnership for his efforts. He says, because the other partner can say, had you told me, I would have worked also. I don't want to pay you for it. I would, I would have been happy to do the work myself. And therefore, he says, he should have told him, and all the partners can say, I would have done it had you told me. And therefore, a partner is not entitled to charge the partnership for work that he engages in on behalf of the partnership. It's very hard to understand how this is different from the case of Yorit. Nesivas himself acknowledges that this is different from the case of a partner who makes his shop or his animal available. He says services and work is different, but he doesn't acknowledge that the halach of Yorit seems to imply that a shutif is like a Yorit. That seems to imply that he can charge even for his work. So this is hard to understand. But there is a Chavos Yair who also seems to say, like the Nesivas, that a partner is not allowed to charge for work and effort that he contributes to the partnership. Rebekah Amdin struggles with this. Rebekah Amdin has numerous questions, including the one we just mentioned, how is this different from a Yarev? So the Nesivas' position is hard to understand. The Nesivas and the Chavos Yair say that partners cannot generally charge for work they provide, again, unless, unless in a case where the that the Nesivas agrees, and that, that the Nesivas says the reason he can't normally charge is because the other partner can say, you should have told me and I would have done it. In a case where the other partner could not have done the work, then the Nesivas seems to agree that the, then the Nesivas seems to agree the partner can charge. Perhaps he understood the holding of Yuri is only talking about such a case where the other partner couldn't have done the work himself. But be that as it may, despite the fact that there's a halacha psuka in Shulchan Aruch, that a shutaf who does, who does work and improves the property, tries to improve the property of the partnership, can charge the partnership as a Yarev. Nevertheless, there, there is an opinion of the Chavos Yar and the Nesivas that somehow say that, that in general, partners who do work cannot charge for the work itself that they do on behalf of the partnership. Maybe they understood the Yarev, the, the charges are for actual expenditures he had, if he, put in, if he planted seeds or so on, but actual personal work and effort that he, that he did, the Nesivas says, and the, Yar, and, the, and the Chavos Yar say that he can't charge for the Pesach Hoshen says that, points out that when Rav Yaakov Emden says that, that he thinks that you could charge, Rav Yaakov goes back and forth on this question, but he's not 100% sure, but he thinks that you could charge for this. He says particularly if the work was difficult, Kveda or Bezuya, it was unpleasant work, it was uh, humiliating work, and the Pesach Hoshen suggests that perhaps in such a case, even the Nesivas and Chavos Yar would agree if the work was not the kind of work that partners would normally do, it was unpleasant work that they would typically hire someone else to do, 
Perhaps all posts can agree that in such a case, a partner who volunteers to provide such work for the partnership does have the right to charge for those contributions, Lukuliyama, even according to the Nesivus and Chavasyar. There's a Gemara Babakama. The Gemara says that if partnership assets are in danger, they've already been seized by bandits, they're in danger. So the halacha is, if one should have saved some of the assets, if he saves all of them, great, then they saved all the assets. If he only saves some of the assets, so let's say, for example, there are two partners, each one contributed 50, there's a total of 100 in assets, one partner saves them from bandits, but only saves 50, so he, want, he says, I saved my share, I want to keep this 50 for my own share. Other partner says, you saved it for the partnership, and now we'll split whatever's left, 50-50. So the Gemara brings the price, uh, the Gemara says, that the, normally we say Hitzelamza, that whatever the Shukhtav did is credited to the partnership as a whole, and he gets his only his share of it. But if he said, if he says, I'm doing this, if he declares at the time he engaged in the effort to save the property, I'm doing this on my own behalf, then he keeps whatever he saved. The Gemara explains that when it comes to Shukhtav, there is normally a presumption of dedication. As long as he's a partner, we typically assume that whatever he did he did so on behalf of the partners. So if he's a partnership, if he's a partner in an ongoing partnership, we, we, we interpret his action as being on behalf of the partnership, and therefore he has to split whatever he saved with the other partners. However, if he says, I'm doing this myself, a shutaf in such a case has the right to make a unilateral division of the partnership. Normally you have to notify the other partner that you want to divide, that you want to dissolve the partnership, but here it's an emergency, you're on the spot. Here you can make an uh, emergency unilateral dissolution, then you're not a partner, and then you're saying that you're saving it for yourself. That's how we baskin, that if a shutuf, whatever a shutuf does is presumed to be on behalf of the other shutfin as well, unless he declares at the time, I'm doing this, I'm saving the property on my own behalf. There's Machlav Sachronim, whether this declaration, the Gemara says, if he says, I'm saving it for myself. So what does Amar mean? Does he have to say it verbally? So the Beis Yosef and the Marshal say you have to say it verbally. The Bach says that it is sufficient to intend it. If the other partner is around, you have to make a verbal declaration, so he should know about it. But if nobody's around, what's the point of making verbal statements if nobody's going to hear them? Then you can do it even, even if that's your intent, then, then you can do it even without verbalizing it. Beis Yosef says it has to be verbal. One of his arguments is we have a general principle, Dvarm Shabalev, Lavi Dvarm. When a person thinks something but doesn't verbalize it, doesn't state it out loud, it doesn't have halachic validities. So the Beis Yosef says it has to be it has to be said out loud. But the Bach says it only has to be said out loud. Bach doesn't discuss Varm Shabalei, but he says it only has to be said out loud if there's someone to hear it. Otherwise, it's pointless, and then even a mental internal declaration is sufficient. The Maras Sasson, or Aaron Sasson, as interpreted at least by the Machin Ephraim, says that this whole din. That if a shutuf saves the, the asset, if a shutuf saves the asset to the shutfus, unless he made the declaration of laatzmi animatzil, then he has to share it. That's only if he saved the actual assets of the partnership, as in the case of the Gemara, where the property was being stolen by bandits and he retrieved it. Or like perhaps if he saved, if he put out a fire and saved, and if he rescued some of the assets of the property of the partnership from a fire. But the Marasasan says. If instead of being able to save the actual assets, he merely managed to secure some kind of compensation, maybe insurance or some other kind of compensation for some of the property, then he says, that's pushed, he says, that that's, that's his own. That's not the property. That's not partnership assets. That's something else. That's compensation. And that, if he, that, even though he's a partner, we say that, that he only saved, 
that he only that whatever he saved he can keep he can keep up to and until he until he receives his share. Nachman Frank discusses whether this is correct or not, but this is how he understands the tshuva of the Torah Sabbath of Aaron Sassan. The how are Schutz and how are partners supposed to behave? What are the rules that govern how partners are supposed to operate while the partnership is in effect? So the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, bring a rule. Partners are expected to act medina, the standard prevailing commercial custom. is supposed to act the way businessmen act in this area with, with regard to this kind of property. The Rambam and Shulchan Aruch give a number of examples. You shouldn't uh, travel away from the initial location. You shouldn't extend credit. Except for a context, the type of transaction in which credit, in type of merchandise in which in which credit is usually extended, and so on. So he gives a number of specific examples, and in general he says partners have a responsibility to behave according to minakamadina. They're supposed to respect the. They're supposed to act in accordance with prevailing custom. There's a major machlok sakronim. There's a major discussion of achronim, beginning in the 16th century among the Sardin for centuries about does a partner have a defense? A shliach, they talk about an agent or a partner. Do they have, is there a defense if a, if a shliach deviates, if a partner deviates from what he's supposed to do, deviates from the minog, deviates from his instructions, and he says, I didn't do what I was normally supposed to do, but I was the man on the spot. This is before they had phones and computers. I couldn't contact you. And my judgment was that in the circumstances in which I found myself, I thought this was your, in your best interest. It turned out it wasn't. It turned out things went south and, and money was lost. But I thought, I truly believe this was in your best interest. So assuming Basin actually believes that, assuming that's credible, is that a valid defense? Can he say the halachas are the default? But I couldn't contact you, and in the circumstances in which I found myself, I thought this was the, I thought this was the best thing to do. The general consensus of the Svartic Postum is that it's not a good defense, that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're considered a Mishane or a Pasheya. We'll discuss uh, next week, next week's share, we'll discuss the, the halachas of someone who is Mishane or Pasheya, who deviates or is negligent. But most can say that in general, the, the claim that I meant well, that I had good intentions, is not a sufficient defense against the charge that he was Mishane or Pasheya. There are some opinions that say that it is, it is a good defense. Even those opinions are, are talking about an onus, like if it was stolen or lost at sea. Even they agree that the Gemara says you'll still be responsible if the business doesn't work out as well as you, as well as you thought it would. Moreover, there are some Akronim who distinguish between, between the case where you actively deviated as opposed to passively deviated, where you actually bought the wrong thing or, or put it in the wrong warehouse or put it on the wrong ship, in which case there's no defense that you meant well as opposed to a passive case where you simply declined he simply declined to follow an instruction he was given. But in general, the post can say that the, that the defense that I meant well is not a good defense. You're expected to, to act according to the, according to the minag, according to the halachas, according to any agreement you have, and you're not supposed to make it up as you go along, even if you truly honestly believe that that's in the best interest of the partnership. But what do we do? What do we do in a case where there's a situation arises where there's no clear, there's no clear agreement? And the partners are discussing what they should do. How do partners resolve a difference of opinion? How do they, what do they do in cases where they're not covered by the initial agreement? So surprisingly, perhaps, this question is not really discussed by the classic postkin. We have a couple of relatively recent discussions, one from a century and a half ago, probably Ezra Gordon of Tells, and one contemporary discussion by Ramendel Shafran of Eretz Yisrael. Well, Ezra Gordon says that, in general, we follow the opinion of Rove of the partners. If the partners can't agree, and Rove say one way, and a Miut minority say the other way, we follow the Rove. 
he says it's true that if we consult experts, if we ask for a professional outside opinion, and the professional's opinion is different from the rove, he sides with the miut, then we'll follow the miut, he says. I mean, if all the shutim want to disregard the experts, that's their prerogative. Obviously, they don't have to listen to the expert. But if even one shutim sides with the experts, the expert sides with one shutim, we follow him because we, we don't follow rove against what we've established to be expert opinion. However, he says, Basin normally will not ask an expert. If Basin sees that partners are disagreeing, Basin will tell them, follow what Rove them, follow what Rove partners say. Why? So Rav Gordon explains that the Schutzfin are not worse than any other experts, even though they are worse in the sense that if we ask outside experts, we follow them against the partners. But as long as you haven't consulted outside experts, he says, you follow the Rove. Don't tell me, he says, they're not gave a dover, they have a, they're, they're interested parties, and we don't care about what they say. Yeah, they're interested parties. Their interest is the best interest of the partnership. So their interest, uh, Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, their interest dovetail beautifully, their personal interest dovetail perfectly with the partnership interest. So we follow the rove because we assume that what the rove wants is indeed in the best interest of the partnership. Rav Shafran has a somewhat different perspective. He agrees that Allah in many cases we will follow the rove. He says the first rule is that in general the partners, companies, businesses will have an agreement. When they form the business, they'll have some kind of agreement about how differences of opinion shall be resolved. And whatever the agreement is, that's what you follow. He says, commonly, when we're dealing with companies, with corporations, the agreement will be to follow Rove, that you take votes and you follow what most of the shareholders want. There are different classes of shareholders, he says. There are voting shares and non-voting shares. But in general, you follow the Rove. Certain types of particularly momentous decisions a supermajority is required, 60% or 75%, but in general, there'll be an agreement. The agreement will typically say to follow the rove, and if there is such an agreement, then you certainly follow whatever the agreement says. Moreover, Rav Shafran adds, even if there is no agreement, he says, even if the agreement inexplicably left out the rules for, for what to do to resolve differences, you still follow the rove in, a, in, a, in the context of a company, of a corporation, because, he says, they probably meant to write that. They left it out, but it's usually written, so we assume that they probably wanted their business to be run on the same pattern that other businesses are run. Don't say, because they left it out, that itself should, that itself should serve as reason to believe that they don't want the standard arrangement. You see, not like that he says. You see, in the, you see we have a rule, achrayas to sofer, that, that the halacha is, that what Marais Machlok is about it, but achrayas to sofer means that when most documents of a certain kind contain achrayas, liability, that the person accepts responsibility if, if the field is, if he sells a field, if the field is taken, he ensures the buyer against loss, he guarantees it'll make him whole. Normally they would write that, that's called achrayas. Achrayas to sell for means if one star doesn't contain that clause, we don't say, oh, the fact that they left it out means they don't want there to be achrayas. On the contrary, we say we assume that they want what everyone else wants, what most people want in these circumstances. The fact that he left it out is a tosofer. It's a mistake. They forgot to write it in. Here, too, Rav Shafran says, if they forgot to write, if they didn't write, that we follow the majority, we assume they want the standard conventional arrangement, and they simply forgot to write it. We do find the, we do find the opposite of Allah as well. In the beginning of our discussion of partnerships, we mentioned the pinning of the rush, that the reason when you have, that when you have two, the Gemara says, when you have Shmuel said, when you have two partners who contribute unequal amounts to the partnership, and then there are prophets, the halacha is, they split it 50-50. The Rishonim give various reasons why. The Rush says the reason why is because Shutzpin normally would stipulate that they want the prophets to be split in proportion to the capital that they contribute. If they didn't stipulate that, the conspicuous absence of such a stipulation indicates that they want the, prop, the, the prophets to be split 50-50. 
so the rush makes exactly this argument that if there is a that if something is typically spelled out explicitly, and here it was not, we assume they wanted something different. But Rav Shafran here says that we, we would rather follow the rule of the Chayas to Sofer. We would rather assume that the omission of the standard follow the majority clause was inadvertent, and they meant it, and we follow the majority. Rav Shafran continues, and he says that the certain decisions are the prerogative of the CEO, the Mankal, that certain, certain normal decisions within the normal operation of the company, the partners leave, the, the shareholders leave to the executives. Now, obviously, he says the executive is not the boss. He's not in charge. I mean, he is the boss, but only because they appointed him the boss. But certainly, he says, shareholders have the right to strip him of his power. They have the right to, uh, to, 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 take, to take authority away from him and to, send, and, to, and to override his decisions. That's all true, because he's simply their representative, their appointee. That's how companies work. But as long as they don't object, he says, then they can delegate certain decisions to him, and the decisions he, make, he makes will be binding. However, he says, this is all if there is an agreement, or if there is an agreement to follow Rove, or in a corporate context, this is how companies normally work. But in other kinds of partnership, he says, we have private individuals who jointly purchase a lot and plan to develop it and build homes, build apartments. This is not a business, a company, this is just a, an individual one-off venture. Then there's no general custom, he says, to follow Rove. So we don't follow Rove. Unlike Rob Gordon, who seems to fail that Rove is an inherent halachic rule, that that's how partnerships resolve differences, Rav Shafran seems to fail that, the, that you follow Rove only because that's the minute. He brings, the Ramah brings, Ramah Rottenberg rule that communities follow Rove. If communities can't reach consensus, unanimous consensus on communal decisions, they follow Rove. But he says that, that again, that's because there was the minute. The minute was they follow the Rove. But if there's no minute, like in a private venture, it's, it's not a company, it's not a business. Like you don't follow Rove, he says. And, and you're stuck by, and you, and you simply have to abide by the initial agreement, whatever it was. No, no partner, no group of partners, even Rove partners, can't force the partnership to deviate from its, initial, from its initial agreement, unless they all agree. Because the same way I can't force you to sell your property against your will, no group of partners, even if they form a majority, can force any individual partner or minority group of partners to, to sell their property or to act with regard to their property against their will. What do you do if you have to make, so you can stay in the status quo, as long as the status quo is viable, unless they all agree, you have to remain with the status quo. What if there is no status quo? What if a decision has to be made? There's a business that lost its lease, they have to sign a new lease, they need new premises, there are two options and the partners can't agree. And we're dealing with a case, again, where we're not going to follow the rove, there's no agreement to follow rove, the partners can't agree, there is no status quo, so what do you do? So Rav Shafran says, if there is, again, professional opinion, like Rav Gordon says, we consult experts, and if, if experts tell us this option is business-wise a better option than that one, you follow that one, because agreements and partnerships, the assumption is that professional opinion should play, uh, play a role in deciding what to do. If, however, there's no clear professional uh, preference, you ask experts, they say these are both viable options, it uh, can go either way, and they can't reach consensus, so what do you do? So in such a case, Rav Shafran says, we do garo. That's what, we make a lottery. That's what Chazal said when partners are trying, when, let's say, brothers, partners are trying to divide property and they can't agree who should get which field or which building or whatever it is. If they can't agree, you do a garo. That's the only fair way to resolve the deadlock. And here too, Rav Shafran says, if partners can't agree, even in an ongoing partnership, if there are two courses of action and they simply can't reach a consensus on which one to adopt, then the halacha is that we perform a garo to decide which course of action to adopt.